0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Title the message, Rethinking Jesus, because basically we're going to be talking today about the study of the historic Jesus, the way that the scholars have over the well, the past couple centuries, the skeptics, the questionable people have, you know, trying to prove that he existed. Um, And that's kind of where that verse came from in John that we read, you know, you you believe without seeing. Um, Because here we are, you know, centuries later, and we still believe, but, you know, there are people questioning and trying to prove this historic Jesus. So um, it's basically... In their research, they they dig through mounds of texts, manuscripts, historic references, in order to find what they can, what they feel is a true fact about this person, a historic person known as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, these studies have been accomplished by believers and non-believers of like. You know, scholars on all sides uh, take these fields on. Of course, each group has a different idea behind what they're trying to prove, One's usually trying to seek to prove the historical Jesus of the Bible, while the other seeks to prove it as false and to have no historical value. They are seeking to just dismiss the Bible as it is. And it may be of little surprise to some of you that the greater amount of work in this area has taken place over the past few hundred years, basically during the time that's called the Age of Enlightenment. Now, for those younger ones maybe who don't know about the Age of Enlightenment, that was a time in Europe during the 18th century when there was a strong movement towards this intellectual, philosophical study where it was centered on reason as the primary source of authority and legitimacy. Actually, it could be traced back a little further to the 17th century with the development of modern science by those like Galileo. Science became a primary tool for these purposes, and of course, this put the this movement at odds with the more faith-based communities. And then on through the 18th and 19th centuries, philosophers pondered the biblical texts, and with the rise of scientific mindset, they came to challenge the idea of miracles and the Bible. Eventually, the philosophers came to the conclusion that much of what the Bible taught about Jesus was fraudulent. It was considered either highly exaggerated accounts of events or purely mythological and outright deceptive writings by his followers, if this man Jesus ever truly existed or had followers. It was during this time when much was studied and many decisions were made in relation to the Bible and the extent of its historical truths. Using the tools at their disposal at that time, scholars studied and came to the many ideas about the Scripture that still influence modern studies to this day. While these studies have continued over the centuries, And while many of the thoughts on the subject have changed gradually in the scholarly world, sadly, some of the findings from the earlier years are still finding influence in the circles of both Christians and the teachings of the skeptics. Fortunately, with the continued advancements in the field of archaeology, the past hundred years have yielded many results relating to the realm of biblical studies. Unfortunately, though, there are many average people or novices and novice skeptics Who have discontinued their studies and are not up with the latest findings. And therefore, they continue spewing forth their views that are based on outdated material. So, today, what we want to do is look at some of the material of recent times to find out what scholars have or should have changed their views over based on the findings. But first, I want to touch briefly on a little history of what they call the quest for Jesus. Now, about 150 years ago, what is referred to as the first quest to find the real Jesus took place. While this first quest came out of what is now considered a largely discredited and obsolete rationalism, its assumptions and methods are still widely seen and used today. Basically, the initial assumptions from that time period are these that miracles cannot and do not happen. The Jesus of history is dramatically different from the Christ of the Gospels. The message of Jesus was dramatically different from the message of the early church, and the Gospels cannot be trusted as historical sources and, in fact, may be considered falsifications of what really happened. Sadly, some of these, op- these assumptions are still the operating principle for scholarship today. But back in the time when they were established, they were the springboard that launched hundreds of books by scholars attempting to reimagine the story of Jesus and tell it within a more scientific and naturalistic vent. The books of this time caused a sort of crisis of faith that gradually emerged into a kind of rationalistic Christianity that we now refer to as liberal Protestantism. Now while many people came to embrace, came to embrace this new rationalistic view of Jesus, some did stop to actually use their brains and think about it, doubting the accuracy of the interpretations. It led uh, Anglican Bishop William Temple to ask the logical question, why anyone should be troubled to crucify the Christ of liberal Protestantism has always been a mystery. By the early 1900s, this brand of liberal Christianity appeared to be bankrupt, and this scientific portrait of Jesus from the first quest began being viewed as a dead end while hanging to the to the no miracles idea of the first quest optimism declined and ultimately led to a second quest that started around the, in the 1950s and then a third quest which went into the 1970s and is continuing to this present day when you dig into this field of study by scholars it can quickly become a complex journey through long often torturous historical arguments they often master the minutia of history and get led down paths that end up contradicting what the Bible and Gospel records actually tell us. In an often ever-changing world of discoveries, what was a historical fact yesterday can become an inaccurate view today. Sadly, pieces of erroneous teachings can easily continue to be taught as fact by teachers who are not up on the latest discovery in the field, and so they continue to propagate the false views, spreading them to those even less informed. Now, today I'd like to take a quick look at some of the areas of information where more recent discoveries have changed previously held views on topics relating to the Bible and Jesus. First, let's take an ever so brief look at the world of textual criticism. And by that, I mean the study of the Bible manuscripts and translations of them. In this day and age when there seems to be an unending amount of available translations of the Bible to choose from, how many people actually stop and think why that might be the case? Isn't there like a master copy of the Bible somewhere that people just take and they translate into their own translation somewhere under glass? Somebody, I think the, the Vatican has it. But now there is one Bible. that's the root one that Jesus wrote, right? And then they just translate from that. That's that's the general. Sadly, some people probably think that, um, but that's not the case. There are actually thousands of individual manuscripts, copies upon copies, many from different time periods throughout history. So what do Bible translators use? Now, without spending much time, let's just do a real brief overview of the history of the Bible. Now, we know that by the time of Jesus, the accepted set of Hebrew scriptures were pretty much a complete set of approved writings. Their their establishment of these writings were were included and have been decided upon and approved by the leaders for some time. Though even then, there were of course many writings still in circulation that while not considered by the Hebrews as part of the authorized set, they were still very much used and taught as helpful and useful doctrinally. Now we've brought these up in the past, the different pseudepigraphal writings, things that were common writings at the time. These were not part of the canon, what they say the approved set of of Hebrew scriptures, but nonetheless they were used still in the church and, and in areas for study. So now, Eventually, those Hebrew writings were translated into Greek, and that's what we refer to as the Septuagint. You'll hear us refer to that. Within the Septuagint translation, there, of course, are many differences in wording when you compare it to the original Hebrew. And by changes there, I mean where the understanding of the translator may have been placed within the translated text. Um, It may not be the actual literal rendering of that Hebrew word into Greek, but instead it's the interpreter's understanding of the meaning behind the Hebrew word that's translated into Greek. And this is usually done based on some kind of a theological leaning or bias by the one translating it. And it's common among translators, so it's, it's just the way it is. Um, and it's helpful to a degree, though, for it tells us that at the time of that translation, that verse that's in question was understood to be referring to a topic that may not have been as clearly evident in the original Hebrew if we were just reading that. So it kind of gives us an idea of what they thought it meant when when they take it and change it a little bit. Oh, okay, that's what they thought that meant. Now, since one language does not always directly coincide with the words and thoughts of another language, the translators must make a choice as to how the passage might be interpreted and they translate it accordingly. That is why it is usually best practice to go back to the original and understand what was there before any translational bias may have entered into the picture. Another factor is the timing of the original text being used. In many cases, there may be a copy of a biblical book that is dated to have been written, say, 500 years earlier than this other copy over here. When compared, there may be variances in each of the texts. Most might think, well, the order is obviously more accurate than the latter version, so... because it must have been changed over the years by translational errors or biases, so they think that they should lean to that. But what if the earlier dated edition had been intentionally changed or corrupted and it is found to be at odds with like ten other copies from a much later date that come from multiple different geographical areas. There may be evidence that the ten copies, while they may be newer copies, were they obviously stem from a different originating copy and may be more accurate than the much older and much older than the older copy with the changes. As you can imagine, the field of manuscript studies gets complicated very quickly. And they go back and forth, seeking to determine which text may have been added and changed intentionally or which may have been just scribal errors and copying. So there's a lot to it. It's not as easy as the olders or better. <clears throat> so now in the time following Jesus, many different groups and individuals wrote what they had seen and heard. And since there was no copy machines back there, nor phones that you could take a picture of, those eyewitness writings had to be hand copied as they were passed around to the various groups and churches of the first century. Of course, not all the writings were by followers of Jesus, and there were some odd ones in circulation also. Then as the years go by, collecting, collections of these writings were understood to be important and to be preserved, and so decisions had to be made as to which of the writings were authentic and which were not. On top of having a multitude of various titles to choose from, there would also have been multiple copies to choose from even at that time of each individual book. So decisions on which copies are most accurate has always been a consideration. So within the first few hundred years of church history, leaders and councils come together to ponder upon which works were considered divinely inspired and which were not, and that is where the body of work we now have known as the New Testament was decided upon. However, even after that, these agreed-upon texts were again copied by hand and translated into many other languages, and that was being accomplished over the years in different areas. Now, then in the early part of the 5th century, Jerome, at the time, gathered, all, gathered a bunch of the copies, and he translated the entire New Testament into Latin. It was his Latin edition that was the key translation for the next thousand years of church history. After that thousand years or so, In the years preceding the Reformation, Greek manuscripts started resurfacing. So the original Greeks that he had used, just they started finding the originals rather than just relying on the the Latin. So the church started looking at the Greek manuscripts and comparing them with the Latin to see, had Jerome done an accurate translation? And so basically textual criticism began at that time again. Then around 1516, Catholic priest Erasmus of Rotterdam began acquiring as many Greek manuscripts as he could in order to produce a Greek New Testament. Because, again, remember, the church had been using a Latin New Testament for like a thousand years. So he started getting all these together. And, of course, he didn't have the same resources we have today, nor did he have the same amount of manuscripts. And so it turns out that there were actually many places in his manuscripts where there were gaps in the Greek. He didn't have Greek, for say this verse, or some of these words, because the manuscripts could be chopped up, broken, uh, or, or just missing you know, entire pages or whatever. So he didn't have all original areas Greek for all the areas he was doing. So in some of those cases, he went back to the Latin manuscripts and translated the Latin into Greek to fill in the holes. Of course, doing this ends up producing a Greek text that actually never existed in any other Greek manuscript. It's brand new because he's putting words in there that may not have been in the original. Also... The Greek manuscripts he did have at the time were only dated to the very late 12th century, so they're not even very old themselves. He's dealing with fairly modern Greek manuscripts compared to what we have in possession now. So basically, that Greek New Testament that he produced is essentially what the 1611 King James was later produced from. So that's the Greek manuscripts that that was used. So that's why at times you may find the English is different or you know, different than some of the more modern translations because of the different Greek manuscripts that are being in used that maybe not fill in the holes the same way he did. Of course, now since the time of Erasmus, scholars have found thousands and thousands of ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, some dating as far back as the 2nd century. So it gives us a much wider depth of text to compare and formulate decisions of textual accuracy. So at present, there actually exists about 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament, dating back through the first thousand years of church history. With one recent discovery, while they're still processing the information, they're saying leans towards it being dated back as far as the first century, so one of the oldest ones that they found, mere, a few mere decades from the actual events that took place. As more and more of these discoveries are made, views changes views change as they would be, would be expected. And while scholars for the longest time believe that the New Testament writings did not even begun to be written down until decades after the fact, like in the 50s or 60s, newer evidence is leading many to think that the book of Mark, for instance, has, was likely written in the late 30s, a mere few years after the crucifixion of Christ. All of this to say that as centuries have passed, more and more material has been discovered, giving a much larger pool of information to study and determine the facts from. And that is often why there have been so many new translations in recent decades. Not only are there more manuscripts to compare and get better text from, but the historic and cultural resources also discovered have given scholars a much better look into the world and the beliefs of the ancients who produced those stories, giving us a clearer understanding of their original meaning. So as manuscript studies continue, more and more opinions on the historicity of the scriptures are formed, and over the centuries... The skeptics have held varying positions, many of which have been overthrown by these new findings. So let's look at some of the changes of opinion in recent times. For many years, the Bible story was attacked by skeptics as they denied the historical existence of Jesus because there was no evidence at all for a town called Nazareth as even being in existence back at the time when Jesus walked here. There's no mention of it in any Jewish or Roman source outside the Bible until the 4th century, not a single mention to the 4th century. It's never mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, nor in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish commentaries, including traditions dating back to the 1st century. Nor does Josephus ever mention it in his massive amount of historical works from the 1st century, even though he does mention many small towns of the time. It isn't until the 3rd century that we even find a historical mention of a town called Nazareth, which may be the town of Nazareth. Even in the extensive journals of Bordeaux, who visited the area of Palestine in 333-334, there is never a mention of the town in all of the places that he visited and documented. In 1962, a discovery was found in an ancient synagogue on Israel's coast. There they found a gray marble fragment listing various towns and villages in Galilee, and Nazareth is included, but even this was dated to be around A.D. 300. So, all evidence seemed to show that the, town to have, that the town didn't come into existence until later, closer to the 4th century, but not at the time as when the Bible account claims it was. Back in the 1950s and the early 60s, workers tore down an 18th century church in the area to make place for a building of what would become the Basilica of the Annunciation, which was completed in 1969. During the work, the teams found Iron Age and Roman-era artifacts as well as depressions in the underlying rock that gave evidence of the possibility of stone houses existing there in the Roman era. During excavations in 1990, in a place believed to be where the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, referred to as Mary's will, and in that same surrounding area that we've been talking about, they uncovered a handful of ancient coins, including 10 from the Maccabean era, which is 165 to 66 B.C., so we're talking a couple you know, 100 years before Christ, 200 years, two from the time of Herod the Great, which is 37 B.C. to 4 A.D., and one from the time of Archelaus from 4 4 B.C. to 6 A.D. So all of this is right around the time uh, before Christ. Then in 2008, a mythicist writer named Rene Salm published a book entitled The Myth of Nazareth, the Invented Town of Jesus. However, within one year of that book being published, Israeli archaeologists made a major announcement that they had discovered the remains of a stone house in Nazareth just steps from the Basilica of Annunciation, and it dates back to the time of Jesus. They had found remains of supporting walls, what appeared to be a hideout or safe room, a courtyard, and an elaborate series of cisterns that seemed designed to collect water from the roof of the dwelling, as well as a group of grain silos buried deep in the ground. According to the preliminary reports at the time, the ruins are of a domestic house with a few rooms and open courtyard dating back to the late Hellenistic to early Roman era, which would be 1st century B.C. through 2nd century A.D. Plus, pottery shards found in the floor of the house were common local Galilean pottery dating to the early Roman period of the 1st century, as well as soft limestone cups and bowls common for Jewish purity rites of the Arabs. In the end, archaeologists have determined that the cluster of ecclesiastical buildings that had been built directly, had been there, had been built directly over what would have been the town of Nazareth at the time of Jesus. They concluded that indeed, the town was there during his time and would have been located in an isolated basin in the hills, far from any main road. That's why most likely it was not noted by Josephus or others at the time. This also would have helped to spare it From the ravages of the Jewish War of 65 through 70. As it turns out, this was not the only, not only the first century, the first first century house, to me first, to have been found in the area. In an archaeological, in a article published in the 2015 issue of Biblical Archaeological Review, Ken Dark reports of a first century house partly made of mortar and stone walls cut into a rocky hillside. That could, they say, very well be the childhood home of Jesus. The site itself was uncovered actually in 1880 by nuns at the Sister of Nazareth convent. And the stone and wood structures were cataloged and recorded in 1936 by a Jesuit priest. However, none of those reports or research were ever published publicly and therefore remained unknown except for the occasional pilgrimers to the area who found these things. And it was actually not until 2006 that the site was excavated by archaeologists. Research shows that the house was revered as the childhood home of Jesus during the, during the Byzantine period, which started around the 4th century, eight, well, century, 8300, and continued up into the 15th century. The house is to believe to have been abandoned in the 1st century and then used as a burial ground. Two empty tombs have been found next to the house, And since they are a rock-cut style with a rolling stone for a door, it suggests that they were used during the first century when such tombs were common. Centuries later, Byzantine Christians erected a church over the site to protect it. And then in the 12th century, Crusaders built a new church at the same location. Other evidence presented in the article was a reference to the 7th century travel log written by an abbot of Scottish Island Monastery, at Iona, listed in the travel in his travel to Nazareth, it notes the existence of a church quote, where once there was a house in which the Lord was nourished in his infancy. So the church had built upon this spot a house sometime between the three hundreds. I mean, yeah, had built a, a church to somewhere between the three hundreds and prior to the travel log, which was written in the six hundreds meaning that historically this place was revered as the house of Jesus. Whether it truly is or not, we'll probably never know. But it just again provides yet further proof of the first century existence of Nazareth, silencing the skeptical claim on this issue. Now, let us look at a few people and places from biblical times that archaeological finds have revealed debunkers of Christianity to be an error on. For instance... The long time claim that no evidence for King David is found in ancient history. That being the case, obviously it's just another myth from the Bible, they would say. Then in 1993, archaeologists working in northern Israel uncovered a rock mount monument that mentions the house of David by name, dispelling yet another wishful myth of the skeptics. Can't y'all read that? It says right there House of of David. Recently, the Biblical Archaeological Review published a list of more than 50 people mentioned in the Hebrew Bible that have been proven historically to have existed, some of which were considered fictional characters by older scholars and critics. Now, the same thing is happening more and more with the New Testament scriptures as as these things are being discovered. For at least two centuries now, archaeologists have been digging up the Holy Land and found hundreds of discoveries that continue to confirm the historical accuracy of the Bible events customs, and places mentioned in the Bible. Such as the 2009 discovery of the ruins of a first-century synagogue in Magdala, on the Sea of Galilee, determined to have likely been in use from 50 B.C., of course, before Christ there, to A.D. 67, when it was most likely destroyed in the first Jewish war. It is believed that with almost certainty, this is a place that Jesus visited and preached, as is mentioned in Mark 1.39. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogue and casting out demons. Measuring 1,300 square feet, the synagogue seems to contain two large rooms, a vestibule and a reading room, and another smaller room. There was a mosaic on the floor and and colorful frescoes covering the walls. In the main room, there was a large square stone, which contains a relief of the seven-branch Jewish menorah, like that. With this place being located just six miles south of Capernaum, which was Jesus' base of operations during his ministry, it is one of the very few places where scholars can confidently say that Jesus almost certainly stood here. Another strike at the Gospels as being nothing more than fiction is the mention of the leader Pontius Pilate, who Bible skeptics were quick to point out the lack of historical evidence for even his existence. That view was shattered in 1962 when archaeologists discovered an inscription in Caesarea Maritima, the center of the Roman administration during the time of Jesus. This Pilate stone, as it is now called, bears the inscription mentioning Tiberius, the Roman emperor at the time, and Pontius Pilate, the perfect of Judea. Archaeologists have also found an inscription bearing the names of Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul, who is mentioned in Acts 13, 6-12 as being as having the run-in with the false, the Jewish false prophet magician, as well as Galio, as Gallio, the pro, proconsul of Archaea, mentioned in Acts 18, 12-17. They found evidence for both of those. And then there is also the inscription found regarding Erastus, who is mentioned in Acts 19:22, 2 Timothy 4:20, and Romans 16:23, where Paul says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus, greet you. Erastus is known as being the city treasurer, which ties in with the wording of the inscription that they found about him in Corinth. There they discovered a marble dedication slab embedded near a long bit of pavement that says, Erastus, in return for his aedilship, which is the word, I guess it means the government office, laid the pavement with his own money. Kind of makes you think he didn't lay it with the treasury money, it lays it with its own money. Now, moving on from people, another key area of attack by the skeptics is regarding the biblical account on the crucifixion. Skeptics, again, claim the scriptures to be fiction because they discuss a form of crucifixion that is not, according to them, historically accurate. John 20, 25, which we read earlier, speaks of Thomas's response as the other apostles state, that they have seen Jesus. And he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. In response to this, many critical scholars scoff, stating that crucifixion was accomplished by tying the victims with ropes and not with nails, as the, so therefore the biblical account is fictional. On top of that, they claim that the crucified bodies were not removed from the cross and buried, as the scriptures say. Instead, they were usually left on the cross to decay for many days, to be eaten by scavengers, and later thrown into a shallow, anonymous grave. Therefore, many scholars hold that Jesus was not taken down from the cross at all. They claim the Romans did not allow the burial or of crucified criminals, and that the whole point of crucifixion was to be a visible deterrent against future crimes, giving a long-term, horrible scene to keep the people in line. They come to this conclusion based on some ancient writings describing the use of crucifixion at the time. Of course, this view had to change some when, in 1968, Israeli archaeologists excavating a burial grave northeast of Jerusalem which contained a first-century tomb with an ossuary. An ossuary, for those who don't know, is a bone box. This bone box contained the bones of a crucified man. For those not aware, a brief explanation of these bone boxes. Now, back in the day, the burial process was a two-part was a uh, the, was a two-part process. After death, the body was wrapped and laid on a slab or a shelf in a rock hewn tomb, as we would know, and the entrance was sealed with a stone slab. They left the body to decay in the dry heat of Palestine for one year, at which time the family would normally return, open the tomb and placed the remains of those into a small ossuary the box this was done in order to provide a more permanent burial which would save more space because tombs were expensive the bone boxes were limestone and the length of them was about long enough made long enough to fit the longest bone in the body the femur at about 20 inches this practice was in place in israel between 20 bc and ad 70 and to date over 2,000 bone boxes have been discovered. Now, inside this particular ossuary of the crucified man, they found that on top of this man's right heel bone, there was a board, and through the board and his heel was a 4.5-inch spike, giving proof that nails were involved in crucifixions. They also found that the man's legs were broken, as is also mentioned in the Gospel account of crucifixions. Now, of course, skeptics are quick to point out that this is the only single piece of evidence in all the bone boxes found that has ever shown any evidence of this nature. That in all the numerous remains that they've found, this is the only example of a crucified man being buried. They say the Romans almost could have been said to have run an execution factory, crucifying hundreds to thousands of people at a time during revolts and other times of turmoil, making burial near impossible. That, due to the Jewish views on, ro- uh, on ritual impurity, they did not leave dead bodies exposed, as is noted by historians like Josephus and others at the time. Josephus stated, the Jews are so careful about funeral rites that even those who are crucified because they are found guilty are taken down and buried before sunset. So it's, they're saying that the Jews, you know, that the Romans would have not allowed it, but Jewish history shows that it was you know, not good. They did not allow that to happen, so they would have. Now, some historians claim that essentially it was part of the law to actually remove the bodies, pointing to the Roman legal code called the Pandecti, which states, the bodies of those who are condemned to death should not be refused their relatives. At present, the bodies of those who have been punished are only buried when when this has been requested and permission granted. And sometimes it is not permitted especially when persons have been convicted of high treason. The bodies of persons who have been punished should be given to whomever requests them for the purpose of burial. Other modern scholars debunk the views of the skeptics by pointing out to the, that the idea of not allowing for burial tends to be based on examples considered during the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 68-70. During the brutal war against the Jews, things were different, and you cannot use that specific situation at a time of turmoil as evidence that that's how things always were through the times of Jesus. Another discovery in 1990 relates to Caiaphas, the high priest, who was in charge when Jesus was arrested. Now, while not necessarily a character that was disputed by the skeptics, it is a biblical character find nonetheless. Historically, he had only been known from written records. But that changed in 1990 when a dump truck driving in the hills outside of Jerusalem accidentally smashed through a burial roof of an ancient tomb dating back to the first century. Inside the tomb were bone boxes like the one found in the crucified man. One of them was decorated more ornately than the others, and on it was written, in Hebrew, mind you, you know, that dead language that supposedly nobody spoke at that time. It had the words, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Inside the ossuary were the bones of six people, two toddlers, a teen boy, an adult female, and a man about 60 years old. Most believe the ossuary to be authentic, and Israeli archaeologists believe it to be the actual family tomb of the high priest Caiaphas. And continuing to speak about bone boxes, some of you may have heard of the uprising and publicity behind the documented release in 2000, back in 2007, co-produced by the famous movie maker James Cameron. It was centered around the 1980 and 1981 discoveries of two intact first-century tombs containing numerous bone boxes, some of which contained human remains. Among them, they found one with the shocking inscription of Yeshua bar Yosef, or Jesus, son of Joseph. The movie, they entitled The Tomb of Jesus, as well as a book that was later written centering on this called the Jesus Discovery, sought to make the claim that this box contains the bones of Jesus. This was claimed in an attempt to prove, to provide proof that he died in a typical Hebrew fashion, was placed in a tomb, possibly moved on the third day, but at some point was later removed from a secret burial place and stored with his family, as would be expected, in a family bone box area. In the book version, co-authored by New Testament scholar James Tabor, it claims that the, bo- that the box almost certainly held the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. But he finds, actually, he finds that this is in no way contradictory to the Christian faith message. Because according to Tabor, the beliefs of the original followers of Jesus believed that he would have been raised in a spiritual body after his death and not a physical body. Therefore, having these bones left behind is not a problem for him. Now, I can only assume that Tabor's comment is based upon some assumption that the apostles have held to some kind of a Gnostic belief in the evil of the material versus that of spiritual, which is really not the case, but that's how he got around that. Also related but found years later and in a totally different location is the ossuary found bearing the inscription, James, son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Scholars still debate on whether the inscription in whole or in part is authentic. Some say... Yes, it said James, the son of Joseph. Others say somebody later added the brother of Jesus. Um, but anyway, so they debate about all that, um, but they still feel that it's uh, legitimate and accurate for James, son of Joseph. This box was not found within the same tomb as the Yeshua box, where the other. While well, there were other boxes with that one, now within the tomb that the Yeshua box was found, and they claim there was other family members of Jesus. There's one marked Maria, which is said to have been the Latin form of the Hebrew name Miriam, along with one labeled as Yosa or Jose, another labeled Miriam Mara, which they would suppose to be a form of Mary Magdalene, and the last one is labeled as Yehuda bar Yeshua or Judah, son of Jesus. The sensationalism of the movies in the book is obvious, and the scholar, but the scholarly and archaeological world does not come to the same conclusion as those who made the movie and the book. In 2013, one of the Israeli archaeologists, who actually is the one that discovered these tombs, as well as another professor who was involved with it, publicly dismissed the claims and theories of the book and the movie, calling them sensationalistic and lacking any factual or scientific foundation. They went on to state that the movie is not serious and that they are not discovering anything They haven't found anything, the people who made the movie, they haven't found anything, and there is no basis at all on which to make a story out of this in an attempt to identify this as the family of Jesus. They stated that the names found on the ossuaries are extremely common for that day and age, and that there is nothing here to link this to the family of Jesus of Nazareth. Now on a side note though, I'd like to spotlight one point of interest, to me at least, in this story. And that's the fact that, as I kind of hinted to earlier, that on these boxes, the supposed Jesus boxes, is the word Yeshua, and not some Greek version of Jesus as many would wish. <laughs> the only reason I mention this is because, as you have probably heard before, we've got that little video that I snagged out of one of David's sermons talks about why he says Yeshua. It's like a seven-minute little blurb. The amount of hits we've got on that, the amount of hype, negative comments, attacks. I don't know what you want to call it. Responses. The amount of responses we've got on that has been just out of this world. People jump all over him for that. No other name but Jesus. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Anyway, his name was never Yeshua. His name was never this Hebrew term. They didn't even speak Hebrew back then. The Hebrew language was dead. It wasn't in use. It had to be Aramaic. It had to be Greek. Um, the thing is, They just, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's frustrating because we archaeologists are finding more and more evidence of Hebrew being alive and well at that time. This type of thing, to me, is just more evidence of that. Now those who, who do take this view are seriously behind on things, like I say, because the evidence is there that there was a Hebrew culture still alive. So when you find these types of things back in that time where you don't find the Greek name Jesus, you find a Hebrew name for what they would say is Jesus. It's just, it, I don't know, it, it strikes me because it's just kind of funny. I mean, there are some that hold that his name, there's a couple different things. We've gotten so many responses, it's, it's, it's funny sometimes to, to deal with some of them. But that one person actually says, everything, God changed the entire culture from Hebrew to Greek on purpose. He rewrote the Bible in Greek. He changed everything into Greek. All the names were Greek. There were no Hebrew names. So that's one view. There's others that say that everybody. What was that letter we got the other day? Everybody in Jesus's family, his brothers, his mothers, they all had Greek names, but Jesus was specifically given a Hebrew name, a Greek name. They all had Hebrew names. He was specifically given a Greek name to stand out, to be so different, to be in that culture that'd be different. So I mean, they there's all kinds of excuses for people as to why that, but you know, I think we find as they uncover more and more things from this same time period that Hebrew was still in use. Uh, more so than they would like to think. Um, Anyway, back to the bone boxes that they discovered that held Jesus' family. Now, due to Jewish religious authorities in Israel being protective over human remains found in the Holy Land, all the bones that were found in these boxes were removed under mysterious circumstances. Sometime in the 1980s and 1990s, they were presumably reburied, but no one seems to know what has happened to them. So, now the last point we're going to look at today is a dispute among the scholars in years past is the view of the New Testament's idea of Jesus being a suffering Messiah. Now, for the longest time, it was held that Jews never had any idea or thought of a suffering Messiah. That was also held that the longtime view of the Jews were when it comes like Isaiah 53, this, this, the message of the suffering servant, that that had always been historically looked at by the Jews as being a metaphor for Israel, that the people of Israel were the ones that were the suffering uh, and not an unexpected Messiah. So they never applied that to the Messiah. Therefore, any idea of a suffering or dying Messiah was the farthest thing from the mind and therefore obviously contrived outside of the Jewish people. Because of that understanding, skeptics tend to hold that the idea of a suffering or dying Messiah was invented and imported into the text by Jesus' followers years later after his mission had failed. Since the Jews expected a military leader and a king, they say, the suffering Messiah is just the way Christian apologists got around the scandal of the cross. This was the view made popular in the writings of the 19th century higher critics and later refined in the early 20th century. For the longest time, it was the standard, unquestioned dogma for those engaged in New Testament studies, and it is still held by some today. Many today, actually. Some of the power behind this view has been weakened after the 1947 discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the further study of Second Temple Period literature, though many skeptics still hold on to this view. In his 2014 book entitled, How Jesus Became God, Bart Ehrman states, Whatever specific idea any Jew had about the Messiah as cosmic judge, mighty priest, powerful warrior, what they all thought was that he would be a figure of grandeur and power who would be a mighty ruler of Israel. Another recent author, Reza Aslan, stated the same belief in the book Zealot, saying, The Jews of Jesus' time had no conception whatsoever of a Messiah who suffers and dies. They were waiting for a Messiah who triumphs and lives. Yet while this has been the old the centuries old assumption experts in second temple judaism such as Princeton's Peter Schäfer Hebrew University of Jerusalem's Israel No and Berkeley professor Daniel Boyarin now argue that the view is, demonst- is demonstrably false they say evidence shows that there were indeed some in the time of Jesus who would have expected a suffering messiah perhaps even one who would die Part of the reason for such a belief is due to the recent discovery of what is being called the Gabriel Revelation. It's a first century, again, first century Hebrew language text that makes mention of the angel Gabriel, you know, the one that appeared to Mary to tell her that she was going to have Jesus. Within this text, there is a discussion of a suffering Messiah figure that predates Jesus, actually, or at least they believe. Israel No, one of those professors, is the scholar who translated this Hebrew tablet, and while he is an Orthodox Jew who does not believe Jesus is or was the Messiah, he doesn't believe that Christians should let modern critical scholars pass off such falsehoods about the idea of a suffering Messiah being made up and applied to Jesus by Christians years later. He feels there is ample evidence to show that there were, in fact, some groups in Jesus' day that expected a suffering, even possible dying Messiah, and that it is possible that Jesus himself probably believed he was living out this exact destiny. Noel says, The main tendency in New Testament scholarship for over a 100 years has been to attempt to resolve these difficulties by denying the historical reality of Jesus' claim to Messiahship. Scholars of this viewpoint maintain that Jesus did not regard himself as a Messiah at all and that he was proclaimed a Messiah by the disciples only after his death. Jesus, they claim, could not have foreseen his rejection, death, and resurrection as the idea of a suffering, dying, and rising Messiah was unknown in Judaism. Noel believed that not only did Jesus think of himself as the Messiah, but that he also expected to be rejected, killed, and resurrected after three days, and that these elements were not a later creation imposed back onto the story at all. Now, the reason he believes this is, is so that it, that is precisely what was believed to have happened to a messianic leader who had lived one generation before Jesus. So based on this writing, it was a commonplace story, I guess he says. Because of this prior belief, the idea was almost was already out there in public view about a suffering Messiah and of a resurrection years prior to the time Jesus came on the scene. It was not invented later, but in fact is found in the Yahud community at Qumran. The hymns found there refer to an earlier Messiah, a leader of the community at Qumran, who describes himself as sitting on a heavenly throne. Who has been despised like me and who has been rejected of men like me? And who compares to me in enduring evil? Who is like me among the angels? I am the beloved of the king, a companion of the holy ones. That's what the inscription said, some of the the hymns at the time. Now, scholars who have studied the Dead Sea literature state that this hymn, referred to as the self-glorification hymn, is a clear echoing of the Isaiah suffering servant idea and was written by someone who felt that through their sufferings they would atone for the sins of the community. So the idea that using Isaiah 53 as a suffering Messiah was in fact not a creation of the Christian community, but was already a part of the teachings of esoteric Judaism. A second reference that adds further weight to this idea is found in the pseudepigraphal book referred to as the oracle of Histaspes, providing further proof that some Jews at the time of Jesus expected a suffering and dying Messiah. The oracle predicts the coming of two kings, one who is false and will call himself God and seek to be worshipped as the son of God. The other will be a great prophet, quote, to turn men to the knowledge of God and who will, quote, receive the power of doing wonderful things. The evil king will wage war against the prophet of God. It says, he shall fight against the prophet of God and shall overcome and slay him and shall suffer him to life unburied, but after the third day he shall come to life again, and while all look on and wonder, he shall be caught up to heaven. These Jewish texts were written a generation before Jesus, and again provide evidence that the idea of a suffering, dying Messiah was already in existence, and that Jesus was therefore on a journey towards a known suffering and death. Therefore, these types of discoveries prove that, no, the Christian community did not invent the idea of a suffering and dying Messiah years later, as has been proposed by the, skept- the critics. Now, Daniel Boyeran, the professor from Berkeley that I mentioned, argues that many of these mistakes are made by New Testament scholars in the 20th century, mainly because of two issues, he says. Both basically, in our words, would be related to not knowing what time it is. First, he believes that they have a faulty understanding of Second Temple Judaism and the issues of the culture of Jesus' time. And secondly, they instead take ideas and beliefs of the teaching of the Talmud, which was written centuries after Jesus' time, and they project those beliefs backwards into the culture and practices of Jesus' life at his time. So while this idea of Jesus' followers creating the suffering servant teachings years later as an apologetic for Jesus' death is still taught in universities and seminaries to this day, Professor Boyerun says it is completely false and has been covered and documented as false by modern Messianic Jews. So This is like not even a point that they argue about anymore, yet people still teach it. So while many hold to the idea that the Jews have always viewed Isaiah 53 as a metaphor for the people of Israel and not the Messiah, Boyer points out, points out that, to the contrary, such a view is a very recent creation, in fact, and it has been completely, it is to be completely rejected. He goes on to say that the notion of a humiliated and suffering Messiah was not at all alien within both Judaism before and during Jesus' time, and actually well into the future from there, into the modern period. He even points to the Talmud for more evidence, where it uses Isaiah 53 to anchor the ideas of a suffering, tortured Messiah that bore the disease and suffered the pains for the people. The other doctrine Boyer challenges the modern scholars with is the idea of the Jewish view of a dual Godhead and the idea of a Redeemer being both God and man. Many say the Jews were strictly monotheistic, and so the idea of a multi-person Godhead is a Christian creation and totally foreign to Judaism. But Boyerin likewise, believes they are off the mark. He points to the intertestamental Jewish texts to show how there was a, clearly a movement within Judaism, both prior and during the time of Jesus, of the notion of two defined, divine figures of equal substance and power, such as an older and a younger God, or a father and son situation. Hints of it, of course, we've mentioned before appear in Daniel 7 with the story of the Son of Man ascending up to the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom, but it gets more fleshed out in this other intertestamental writings. So, Boyurin concludes that many of the ideas that modern scholars think are most characteristically Christian creations are really Jewish through and through. He states, The notions of a dual godhead with the father and the Son. The notions of a Redeemer who himself is both God and man, and the notion that the Redeemer would suffer and die as part of the salvation process all have deep roots in the Hebrew Bible and may be among some of the most ancient ideas about God and the people that the Israeli, Israeli people ever held. Of course, this view causes quite a stir and ignites debates within the modern New Testament scholarly world, but change usually does. As more and more is discovered, And as new light cast upon the ancient pasts of biblical times, we can only hope that truth will grow and prevail over prior false assumptions. That was what was that what was once commonly held views within scholarship will change as additional information is provided, and hopefully a new clarity regarding the scriptures will grow as we continue to uncover and understand the ancient writings, places, and knowledge as it relates to the Bible in general. Although my absolute greatest hope is that the mainstream church of Yahweh would wake up, not stay complacent, but continue to study to show themselves approved, studying these new discoveries and conforming their ideas of scripture to the new knowledge discovered that they would not simply stick with the traditions that have long since been proven erroneous but may be unknown to them. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the... uh, discoveries that have been made uh, by those who may not be making them for the intent of glorifying you, but nonetheless have shown you to be faithful and have shown your word to be faithful. We thank you so much. We pray that these things would be made public knowledge and not just be argued and debated amongst the scholars, but that the common people would know more and more and that uh, we could turn turn off the path of ignorance and of uh, the critics and skeptics who are... Always attacking the Bible. We just pray that you would help us to understand and to have new light on these topics. We thank you so much for these blessings. Amen.